The headlines tonight. Beans war in Tennessee. Kosovo Liberation Army caught with pants down at Yugoslav border. And Mariner 2 goes Venus flybee. Plus coming up, a jealous Pluto confronts NASA for neglecting its neighbour planets. Those are the headlines. Beam me up, Scotty. News bang. Laughing at the absurdity of seriousness. In the time, some 1863. A nail-biting day in 1863, as the American Civil War raged on. In the Battle of Bean Station, General James Longteeth led his Confederate Confederates against Union General Shackelford's cavalry, who were enjoying a picnic. The clash was part of the Knoxville campaign, fought over the hotly contested issue of slavery, or people-owning as it was then known. The Union forces had occupied Knoxville, much to the chagrin of General Longteeth, who wanted it for his toy collection. General Sherman was sent to the rescue but arrived too late. He found only a note that read, Gone to war. Back soon. No more than four hours. Despite his reputation as a competent general, Longteeth's siege of Knoxville failed and he retreated with his tails between his legs. The battle took place in Granger County, Tennessee, population 3527, uh, 17, where eyewitnesses reported heavy fighting and an almighty bean spillage that still haunts them to this day. The tasty, uh, 1998. In the year of our Lord, 1988, the Balkans erupted into chaos. The Yugoslav army, under General Tito's reanimated corpse, clashed with the KLA, the Kosovo Liberation Army, a motley crew of Albanian separatists led by the enigmatic KLA Rash, Jovovich. Although the spark, weapons smuggling, the Yugoslavs ambushed a KLA convoy in a daring daylight raid near the Albanian border. Eyewitnesses described total bedlam as Kalashnikovs blazed and RPGs flew like confetti at a gypsy wedding. Caught in the crossfire was a local goat herder, Borislav Chukulbatovich. I was tending to my goats when suddenly, boom, goats everywhere. It was like, honey, I blew up Yugoslavia. The conflict escalated faster than an ethnic joke at a Balkan BBQ. NATO intervened in 1999, bombing Belgrade back to its Ottoman roots. Jovovich disappeared, last seen disguised as a one-legged Serbian grandmother. 1962. 1962. NASA's Mariner. Two, the Randy spacecraft, had a close encounter with Venus today. Venus, known for her thick atmosphere and being the second hottest planet from the Sun, was caught off guard by the interstellar voyeur. Mariner 2 sent back racy images of Venus's swirling clouds and fiery hot surface, leaving scientists in a frenzy. It's like nothing we've ever seen, gasped astrophysicist Dr. Richard Throbwell. Her surface is 8,642 degrees Fahrenheit, and those swirling winds, my goodness. Meanwhile, Venus remained nonchalant about the whole ordeal, accustomed to such attention. Oh, it's just another space probe, she purred, applying more cosmic mascara. I get them all the time. News bang. Exposing the naked truth, even in its birthday suit. The next segment is about the weather, 
and Shakanaka Giles will be sharing details about the current climate conditions. He'll discuss regional variations, tips to stay warm, and provide a brief forecast for the day. So stay tuned for that update on the weather situation. For the weather today is all about the cold shoulder. Like a rejected lover, the frost is creeping into town, nipping at our noses and chilling our bones. So grab your scarves, your mittens, and perhaps a mug of hot cocoa. In the north, the snow has returned, transforming the landscape into a winter wonderland, just in time for the festive season. Frosty flakes will be falling like a snow globe being vigorously shaken. In the south, we can expect a crisp, clear day with the sun shining down upon us, warming us with its winter embrace, but with a frosty chill still in the air. It's a bit like the last warm hug before turning the heat down on a winter's eve. And that's all the weather for today. Stay toasty, folks. And that's all the weather. Le Tasty, uh, 1998. The Kosovo War, a conflict between the Yugoslav forces and the Kosovo Liberation Army, took place from 1998 to 1999. It escalated when NATO intervened due to the escalating violence. In this tumultuous period, a clash occurred involving the Yugoslav army and KLA militants who were attempting to smuggle weapons from Albania. Brian Bastable has more on this complex scenario. This day in history may have passed into the misty recesses of time, but the battle goes on forever. The Kosovo War, the battle of the brave against the cowardly. The conflict we see in our dreams as children. Yugoslav forces surrounded by a small army of KLA militants attempting to smuggle weapons across the border. The situation, as they say, was hot. As I ran towards the battlefield, I knew I was entering the very heart of the conflict, a place where no man would come out alive. I drove over a small hill and there they were, the brave men of the Yugoslav army, lined up and ready to defend their homeland. As I approached, I could see the men were shaking with fear and fury, for these were no ordinary fighters. These were soldiers with stories so terrifying that only the sound of battle could bring them peace. In front of me lay a valley of blood and broken dreams. As I reached the bottom, I knew I was going to make it. I looked into the face of a soldier, so young and yet so bitter with battle. He reached out and held my hand. He whispered in my ear that it would be okay, that we were going to win. As we stood and fought the sky turned red, the sound of explosions were ringing in our ears. The KLA militants had opened fire and we were under attack, but the Yugoslav army did not falter. They stood and fought until the end, until the KLA lay vanquished. I stood there surrounded by a field of the fallen. I knew that this would be a day that would never be forgotten, a day that would live on in infamy. Today we stand tall and fight for freedom. Today is a day to remember. 
Brian Bastable, Newsbang. 2012. This year, 2012 brought profound tragedy to the town of Newtown, Connecticut, as a mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School left 26 people dead, including 20 innocent children. The assailant was 20-year-old Adam Lanza, who first shot his mother before committing suicide. The Newtown Public Schools District houses a total of 5,298 students, while the population of Newtown is approximately 27,173 people. Our reporter Ken Shit has covered this heart-wrenching event. Good evening, degenerates. As we delve into the dark recesses of 2012, let's not forget the day that shattered the innocence of a small town in Connecticut. Newtown Public Schools home to 5,298 students, was supposed to be a place of learning and growth. But on this fateful day, it became a battleground of bloodshed and terror. 26 innocent souls lost their lives, 20 beautiful children with their whole lives ahead of them, and six brave adults who dedicated their lives to educating the next generation. The shooter, a twisted 20-year-old named Adam Lanza, unleashed a hailstorm of bullets upon the unsuspecting victims before taking his own life. This wasn't just a mass shooting, it was an act of pure evil, a cowardly assault on the most vulnerable members of our society. And as we stand here today, we're left to wonder how such a tragedy could have happened in a place where children should feel safe and protected. But let's not sugarcoat this shit, folks. This isn't about gun control or mental health issues. It's about fucking evil. It's about monsters like Adam Lanza who walk among us, ready to strike at any moment. And until we figure out how to root out this darkness from our society, tragedies like this will continue to happen. So let's honor the memory of those lost in Newtown by vowing to do everything in our power to prevent such senseless violence from happening again. Let's stand together as a community and demand change. Because when it comes down to it, there's nothing more important than protecting our children. Our future. Ken shit out. 19 Antitoint 18. In the year 1918, a watershed moment in British politics occurred. The historic coupon election saw women over 30 granted the right to vote for the very first time. This pivotal event contributed greatly to the landslide victory in that year's general election held in Britain, which was won by Prime Minister David Lloyd George's coalition government, accompanied by strategic losses for the non-endorsed Liberals. Providing further perspective on these developments is our reporter Hardeman Pesto stationed at our Westminster studios. Ladies and gentlemen, we're live in the heart of London at the hustings, full of excitement and anticipation as the voters cast their ballots. The polling stations have just opened. I have with me the honourable candidate of the Conservative Party, Mr. Stanley Baldwin. Good evening, sir. Uh, good evening. How do you find the mood of the people today, Mr. Baldwin? It's an interesting day, Mr. Pesto. Now we have women with the vote. It'll be interesting to see how that changes things. Undoubtedly. That's been one of the most hotly debated topics of this election. Do you think it'll make a difference in the outcome? It's hard to, uh, to say. There's a lot of change in the air. Let's see what the people of this country desire. We understand you're a strong supporter of proportional representation. Yes, I am. I think it would be a fairer system. Do you think it'll be implemented soon? It's hard to say. 
We'll have to see what the people want. But surely as a member of parliament, you have some influence in that decision. Well, Mr. Pesto, I'm not sure that's something I can discuss. It's up to the people to decide. But isn't that what politics is all about, making decisions on behalf of the people? That's certainly one way of looking at it. It's a painful business. Sir, I've got to say it's a little disappointing. I was hoping for a more definitive answer. You know, Mr. Pesto, politics can be a frustrating business. The people hold the ultimate power and we must respect their wishes. But what if the people aren't making the right decisions? Ah, well, then it's up to us to educate them, isn't it? I see. Well, thank you for your time, Mr. Baldwin. Uh, Thank you. And to all of our viewers, we'll be bringing you more live coverage from the campaign trail throughout the night. Good night. Newsbang, a wonderful parade of facts. The next segment will feature a special report from our cricket correspondent Ryder Boff, who's going to bring us up to speed on the historic first tied test match in cricket and Ian Meckiff's role in it. So fasten your seatbelts for an out-of-this-world sports story that might just take you to the moon and back. In the meantime, stay tuned for more updates throughout the airtime. Greetings, my friends. It's the 20th of January, 1970, and by gum, we have ourselves some news. No, not that nonsense about that Neil Armstrong mooning about with nothing but a flag to keep him company. No, sir, we've got something much more important here. Ian Meckiff, a cricket player from Oz, has been run out in the very first tied test match in the history of cricket. I mean, did he forget to pack his pads or what? This tied test business is a rare occurrence indeed, you see. And what's more, Meckiff will be remembered forever as the batsman who got the boot in the first of its kind. Ah... I tell you, there was just too much happening that day, Armstrong's moon jaunt, Meckiff's run out. So now we have to ask ourselves, where will these two icons meet again? Perhaps at the next moon cricket match, huh? That's right, we might well have interstellar cricket on our hands before we know it. In the meantime, do keep an eye out for Meckiff's next bowling action. There's no telling what he might throw our way. I've been ride a boff, and I can tell you, it's been an out-to-this-world kind of day. Rising now to present a segment on the events of 1999 in Venezuela, we have Penelope Winchime. She's about to share her unique insight on the impact of the flash floods and how it connects to our own environmental responsibilities today. Be sure to listen carefully for her personal touch on what happened during that crucial period in Venezuelan history. Ladies, gentlemen and children of the earth, I am Penelope Winchime, the melodious harbinger of the ecosphere. Picture this heart-wrenching tableau from 1999. The Venezuelan state of Vargas, home to seagulls wearing sailor hats and fish with a penchant for salsa, was brutally assaulted by torrential tears from Mother Nature herself. A deluge descended like an aquatic avalanche, sweeping away our human handiworks as if they were mere sandcastles at high tide. The unsuspecting neighborhood of Los Corrales Oh, sweet Los Corrales, was embraced with three meters of mud's murky kiss. Homes became subterranean mysteries. Streets turned into tragic tributaries. It's said that flash floods are hurried harbingers of havoc. They do not dawdle or dilly-dally. Within a heartbeat of six hours or fewer, they transform tranquility into chaos. In this ecological opera, 
Entire towns vanished like spectres in the night, pulled under by nature's relentless undertow. Let us not forget that Vargas, La Guaira, is the pulsating artery of Venezuelan trade. Its seaport and airport, once bustling hives of human industry, now rendered silent witnesses to watery wrath. Remember that moment in 99 when we learned even our mightiest anchors cannot hold against Earth's tempestuous tides, and know well that whilst today we may lament on history's stage under spotlights powered by the tears of a thousand unicorns, wait, I mean resources as renewable as unicorn dreams, we must strive to shore up our kinship with this blue-green marble we call home. Until next time, dear listeners, cling to your loved ones like ivy to ancient oak and be kind to your planetary playmate. For I am Penelope Windchime. And remember, when you recycle just one bottle, somewhere an albatross smiles. 1972 Calamity Prenderville's taking us on a journey back to the moon's surface in 1972, discussing the Apollo mission and its connection to British innovation. She'll also delve into lesser-known aspects of lunar exploration, like the role of animals and future space projects involving tea trolleys. Join us for this fascinating look at mankind's quest to conquer the cosmos. Ladies and gentlemen, grab your space boots and dust off your helmets because we're taking a giant leap back in time to 1972. That's right, it was on this very day that Gene Cernan scribbled his name in the lunar dust as the last man to moonwalk during the Apollo 17 mission. Now, while Cernan was hopping about like a bunny on the moon's surface, what you might not know is that this historical moment was, of course, all thanks to a little-known British innovation, the crumpet-cushioned soul. Yes, those clever boffins at the British Space Agency, uh, which operates from a top-secret shed in Basingstoke, discovered that stale crumpets absorb shock like no other material. Perfect for that moonwalk swagger! Apollo 17 was like a grand science fair with rockets. There were more experiments than a mad scientist's birthday party. And let's not forget the lunar rover, basically a golf buggy, but with less room for clubs and more for rocks. Let us also pay homage to the unsung heroes of space exploration, Monty the Squirrel and Gertrude the Gecko, who orbited the moon in the name of interstellar discovery before humans even took their first small step. Sadly, since Cernan's exit stage left from our dear moon's theatre, no one has fancied going back. Perhaps they lost their return tickets, but fear not, for I hear whispers that Britain's next grand project involves sending a tea trolley into orbit because nothing says colonialism quite like planting a flag and having a nice cuppa. So here we are in 2023, still looking up at that glowing orb and thinking of Jean's last tango on the moon. Godspeed, Mr Cernan, and let's raise our teacups to those lunar dreams. A news bang, diving into the ocean of truth to surface with the nuggets of facts. Sandy O'Shaughnessy is back with the latest royal segment of our Newsbang series, taking us on a journey through history, this time to the Tang Dynasty where an intriguing coup took place. We also get a glimpse into the world of Brendan's love life and Queen's scandals. 
So buckle up and join us for another exciting historical ride on Newsbank Central Command Station number whatever it is. Nice and easy. Ahoy there, folks. Welcome back to Newsbang's Royal Segment with your favourite Irish raconteur, Sandy O'Shaughnessy. Let's pour a cuppa and hop on the old time machine again. 2023? Sure, I say. Let's journey back to 835 AD. That was a year when our mates across the Great Wall were busy dealing with a rather interesting incident. The Sweet Dew Coup. Now, I don't know about you, but Sweet Dew Coup sounds more like the title of a jolly good musical than a failed attempt to kill eunuchs and take power. The Emperor Wenzong of the Tang Dynasty was behind this little escapade, a man who wanted what every ruler wants, total control. Ah. <laughs> but even J.R. Ewing would have given up after reading those tragic tales from Emperor Wenzong's reign. It seemed as if no one made it out alive without a fatal stab in the back, or should I say a fatal castration? <laughs> the Tang Dynasty was a time of great cultural and political prosperity for China. They had an enormous territory, like Dallas, times 20. And during their reign, eunuchs weren't just groomed for their courtly charm, but also for their social functions. Talk about multitasking, but alas, even an empire as grand as Tang couldn't dodge disaster forever. The Sweet Duku stands as a stark reminder that power can be fleeting and that even kings can fall prey to betrayal. Ah. <laughs> Speaking of betrayal, my old pal Brendan just sent me an email asking if I know why he woke up this morning with his head in someone else's bed. Again? Poor Brendan is either living his best life or has picked up some very questionable habits from listening to my stories every night. By Jove, there are some folks who just can't help but stir up trouble historically speaking, or otherwise. Ah. <laughs> All right then, folks, it's time to say goodbye once again to our dear friend Emperor Wenzong and his interesting escapades. We hope you enjoyed this little adventure through time as much as we did here at Newsbank Central Command Station, number whatever it is. And as always, remember, if history has taught us anything, it's that life is full of surprises and sometimes castrations. Ah. <laughs> Until next time, keep those letters coming. Under the In 2009, the Tino Tanga flag, a symbol representing Maori people, received official recognition from the New Zealand government. The flag signifies various meanings such as highest chieftainship, unqualified chieftainship, self-determination, sovereignty, and absolute sovereignty. It holds significant importance in New Zealand politics, particularly relating to the Treaty of Waitangi that was signed with the Maori people. The Maori are native Polynesians to New Zealand and played a crucial role in shaping their unique culture. Smithsonian Moss has a report on this story. Now at this point of the evening we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Oh, that's some seriously dank news, mate. Now let's take our flamboyant, satirical selves back to 2009. 
where they were all fired up about the Tino Rangatira Tanga flag, a symbol of pride for the Maori people. Yeah, you know, the Polynesian folk who've been spitting fire in New Zealand since, like, forever. And speaking of fire, New Zealand's got quite the fiery political scene. This isn't just your run-of-the-mill Tweedledee and Tweedledum situation. Nah, this is more like the Hunger Games, but with better accents and fewer teenage deaths. Think of it as Avatar, the last airbender, but in real life, minus the whole airbending thing. Still pretty damn magical, if you catch my drift. And don't forget the grand old Treaty of Waitangi, the dock that's been at the center of it all. It's like that one teacher in school who never stopped giving you homework. Can we all say, thank you, but no thank you? I don't care how important it is historically. Mate, some things are best left in the dusty confines of a history book. Now imagine the Tino Rangatiratanga flag flying high, like a majestic kiwi bird soaring in the New Zealand skyline. It's the most Maori flag ever, right? Picture it, mate. The All Blacks rugby team under that flag, just like that one scene in The Lion King where Simba ascends to the Pride Rock. If flags could talk, this one would be chanting, Haka, 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 to the beat of the drum. It's the cultural representation of the Maori, the ones who didn't know when to stop lighting fires. But, hey, who am I to judge? I was busy being obnoxious and ridiculous, weren't I? That's all, folks, keeping it real, real classy like it's always been. Newsbang, the gavel-to-gavel revelation of the news. Intro. And now, one last roundup of tomorrow's headlines before we bid adieu. The Times, St. Lucia saved by Union Jack. The Royal Navy thwarts French advance in the Caribbean, includes a map of the West Indies. The Telegraph, Union's Nashville, victory spells, doom for rebels. Confederacy dealt a blow as North tightens grip on the South. The Guardian, Eichmann guilty of crimes against humanity and war. Former Nazi leader faces justice for Holocaust atrocities. The Express, French fleet sunk in Lucia Lagoon. British dominate Caribbean waters after sea skirmish. There's a mast there, breaking in half with a palm tree in the background. The Sun. Southerners trounced at Nash Vegas. Yanks deal crushing blow to Dixie forces in Tennessee tussle. With a drawing of a Union soldier waving old glory over a fleeing Confederate. That's it from Newsbank. Now it's time for the news where you are. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.